Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. This week, the world of parasites. We find out what's living in you and on you, how these invaders hijack your immune system, and how they can even control the behaviour of their hosts. Plus, in the news, the oldest remains of our first human ancestors are uncovered in Ethiopia. Scientists weigh a stegosaurus, and NASA have the solar system's biggest asteroid, or should that be dwarf planet, in their sights. And what... Are they seeing? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, news that humans have been around longer than we realised. Fossils of our genus, Homo, had previously only been found dating back to 2.4 million years ago. Older fossils that have been found, like the famous female specimen Lucy, are from a more primitive lineage. Now, scientists working in Ethiopia have uncovered evidence suggesting the species that gave rise to modern humans is older than we thought. Bill Kimball is one of the team that made the discovery. The specimen was found by uh, uh, an Ethiopian graduate student of ours, a man by the name of Chilacho Seum, in January of 2013 at a site known as Lady Gararu. This is in the Ethiopian part of the East African Rift Valley. He was part of a field survey project. They, as is commonly the case, identified a very specific area of exposed sedimentary rock to survey or explore uh, one morning and focused on a hillside which uh, was dotted by freshly eroded bones. It's a very rich hillside. And Chilacho uh, was uh, walking up the slope of this hill, rather steep hill, and near the top, he spotted just poking out of the loose eroded sediment a premolar tooth uh, situated in a fragment of jaw that our team is attributing to one of the earliest known representatives of the genus Homo at about 2.8 million years ago. How do you know how old that specimen is? In eastern Africa, we're fortunate that the sites are in a rift valley setting, and the East African rift valley over millions of years has been tectonically very active with many volcanoes. Back in the time of the Lady Gararu uh, early Homo, ash was erupted and coated the landscape, and that ash layer was incorporated into the, uh, the growing stack of sediments being deposited by streams along their banks. We now move forward to 2013. The spot at which the jaw was found was located about 10 meters above this volcanic ash layer. And that layer, thanks to radioisotopic techniques of dating, that ash layer 
was nailed down at 2.82 million years ago. The jaw being located just 10 meters above it obviously will be very slightly younger and we calculate the most likely age of the jaws between 2.75 and 2.79 million years old or thereabouts. And what does the fragment actually look like? What does it comprise? The jaw consists of uh, the left side of a lower jaw or mandible with all three of its molars in front of the molars, uh, both of its premolars, a little tiny bit of the canine uh, tooth, uh, but mostly its root in place, and then the sockets of the front two teeth, the two incisors. Broken just about in the midway through the chin so that we can actually create a uh, lovely mirror image of the entire jaw by uh, reflecting around the middle of the chin. What does this actually mean, though? What are the implications of having found this jaw in terms of what we now understand about our own origins and our ancestors' origins? I think we can say with a fair degree of confidence that uh, the, the earliest uh, representatives of the line leading directly to Homo sapiens, our own species, split off from a more primitive, Lucy-like Australopithecus ancestor between 2.8 and 3 million years ago. And that's a good four or 500,000 years earlier than, than we could have said before this jaw was discovered. So we've pushed the origin of our lineage back by about half a million years. Given that you can finger out origins more precisely in this way, is there anything else in the fossil record or the climate record that was happening around that time that you think might therefore have stimulated our early ancestors to evolve? to become these creatures? Well, one of the favorite tropes of, of paleoanthropology today is to attribute all kinds of changes in human evolution uh, ultimately to changes in global climate. This period of time is no exception. We understand that the continent of Africa beginning around 2.8 or 2.7 million years ago, the environment began to change. It became uh, more seasonal. It became more open and arid. And indeed, Dr. K. Reed and the other paleontologists on the project have scrutinized the animal fossils found alongside the early homo individual. And they've determined that these animals formed a community that was, in fact, living in a relatively arid environment compared to those occupied by Lucy and her kin just a couple hundred thousand years before in the same area. So this is at least on the surface consistent with the idea that early Homo was able to occupy environments that were not populated by its ancestors. Whether or not climate eventually played a role in the actual origin of the Homo lineage will depend on discoveries we will hope to make moving back from 2.8 million years towards Lucy at about 3 million years. So we can stay tuned for, uh, for further discoveries on that point. That was Chris speaking with the University of Arizona's Bill Kimball. There are more fossils on the way because shortly we'll also be meeting Sophie, who's a 150 million year old Stegosaurus. 
Before that, though, and after a seven and a half year long journey, NASA's Dawn spacecraft is finally in orbit around the dwarf planet, slap on wrist if you call it an asteroid, Ceres. Ceres is the largest of the bodies in the asteroid belt out beyond Mars, and scientists hope that it's going to be able to tell us something about how planets like the Earth were formed. Carolyn Crawford is from the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, and she's here to shed some light on this for us. Hello, Carolyn. Hello there. What actually is the asteroid belt, first of all? Well, the asteroid belt is this enormous swarm of rocky, icy objects that live out between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So you're talking about just over two to just over three times further out from the Sun than the Earth lies. And they're basically debris. They're left over from the early stages of the formation of the solar system. They're kind of like chunks of a planet that failed to coalesce. There was supposed to be a planet between Mars and Jupiter, but you've got the gravity of Jupiter kept stirring up all those rocks, but they never got their act together. They never formed a planet. And so, you know, they're of interest because they're telling us something about that early solar system. So if we study those rocky bodies, we learn something about the evolutionary history of how planets put themselves together four and a half billion years ago. The thing about most of the asteroids is they're very small. They go down to tens of metres and there are just a few that are perhaps hundreds of kilometres across. And if you have an object that size, it doesn't undergo all the sort of geological processing that the major planets, it hasn't had tectonic plate processing, it hasn't had all the kind of geochemical activity. So most of the asteroids remain as almost like pristine chunks of that very primitive material that went into the solar system. So you were just talking about fossils. Well, in a way, asteroids are the fossils for our solar system. We look back at those and we can see what the ingredients were to make the planets we have today. Ceres is something of an outlier then, isn't it, given that it's about a 1,000 kilometres across, sitting in amongst this debris field? Yes, and it's an interesting one. And you may regard it more as a failed protoplanet. And this is why it's interesting, because it's it's the bridge between those small pristine asteroids and the major planets. Maybe this did get further along in the development and maybe it reached the protoplanet stage before it then failed to continue. And because it's that size, as you say, just under a thousand kilometres across, it's got enough gravity that it's pulled it itself into a sphere. It's undergone some of that geological processing. It's undergone what we call differentiation. It has a core, it has a mantle, it has a crust. And so it's kind of gone somewhere along the way to being a planet, but not quite. Dawn didn't go straight to Ceres, though, did it? Because it took in Ceres' smaller sister, Vesta, on the way a few years ago. That's right. Between 2011 and 2012, it spent a, a year in orbit around Vesta, which is the next largest object in the asteroid belt. That's not big enough to really be a dwarf planet, but it still is probably a protoplanet. It's only just over 500 kilometres across, and it forms an interesting contrast to Ceres. It's slightly closer into the Sun than Ceres is. It's a less icy body. It's got a metallic core. And one of the things that's fascinating the scientists about this whole mission is to be able to compare two so different protoplanets. Why is one a much more wet object? Ceres has got ice and rock, whereas Vesta really doesn't. It's much more metallic and rock. And what are the differences between the two planets? And how can you account for them being more or less the same part of the solar system, but yet having had quite different histories? I know everyone's saying this uh, week or so just gone by that Dawn has arrived at Ceres, but this is only really the beginning, isn't it? Because now it's got to establish itself in a much lower orbit than it is now in order to 
do the surface survey it's going to do? Well, we had some fantastic views of Ceres as it was approaching around about sort of mid-February. It effectively overshot the dwarf planet and then it's approached it from the dark side. And it's then, got, as you say, got to manoeuvre itself into a closer orbit and get round to the sunlit side. So we're not going to get fantastic images probably for a few weeks now until the end of April. It's going to start out at an orbit about 4,000 kilometres away and over the next year and a half work spiralling closer and closer. And so it can then map the surface from down to about a few hundred kilometres away and get more and more detail about those features that we're beginning to see. And just very briefly, what is it actually going to be scrutinising the surface to see or how is it going to examine the surface? Well, obviously, they're going to be taking images and spectroscopy of the light reflected from the surface. They'll be looking at the geology of the surface, but they're also going to be sensing any variations in the gravitational response of the spacecraft to from the dwarf planet as telling something about the internal structure and help us to kind of dissect what the core is like and also whether there are possibilities that it does have a substantial fraction of ice or even possibly water underneath that crust. It's going to be really interesting, isn't it? Thank you very much, Carolyn Crawford from the Institute of Astronomy. Now, how do falling cats always manage to land on all four feet? And why does toast tend to end up butter side down? Well, it's all down to how things spin. This is more important than it might sound. It could actually help us to build robots that can jump accurately from one place to another, something that's a major challenge right now. Cambridge University scientist Malcolm Burrows and his colleagues have been watching something else that's an expert at jumping, the praying mantis. Khalil Thurloway went to meet him. In their natural habitat, they live amongst the stems of plants or the branches of of trees. And when they're young, they don't have any wings. So if they're on these branches, the only way to get to another branch, basically, is to jump. So we arranged them to stand on a platform and gave them this small black rod as a target to which they could jump. They would jump reliably time after time to this target. And that enabled us to then film these jumps at a 1,000 frames a second, and that enabled us to slow the time down sufficiently so that we could resolve the intricate movements that they were making during this very rapid movement. So how are they generating this power and also this accuracy of landing every single time? First of all, what they do is they sit on their platform and they scan the target by moving their head backwards and forwards, seemingly to estimate the distance that they've got to jump. Then they prepare themselves for jumping, adjusting the centre of mass of their body by curling their abdomen over the top of the body so that when the middle legs and the hind legs provide the propulsive force for a jump, there is a spin imparted to the body as it takes off. Then once they're airborne, they have to regulate the amount of spin that the body is going through so that it's correctly oriented at the right angle to be able to land with all their legs and grab hold of the target. So how do they control this spin once they're airborne? There's nothing to push against except the air. They don't have wings. Well, they go for this intricate sequence of movements in which they rotate the front legs, the hind legs and the abdomen in different directions and in different combinations throughout the jump. And this rotation of these limbs and the abdomen stores angular momentum and means that the body itself doesn't rotate as much and remains stable and in the correct orientation for landing on the target. How do we know that these movements are actually fine-tuning the mantis's angle? We have two approaches to doing that. First of all, we, we built a model. 
not an artificial model of a mantis, but a mathematical model of what the body is doing. And then we could say, well, what happens if one of these parts of the body does not move? And the first thing we did was to say, well, what happens if the abdomen does not curl up? And the answer to that was that it didn't impart the necessary spin onto the body. And what in fact happened without the abdominal rotation was that it went headfirst into the target and just headbutted the target and then sort of slipped off. That's not quite as graceful as the previous scenario. Not at all. And that was just messing up with one part of the body. And it told us a lot about the mechanisms that were underlying these movements. The second thing was to experimentally interfere with the movements. So one of the experiments we did was to glue the segments of the abdomen together so that it couldn't curl up as much. And again, what happened there was that it crashed into the target because it couldn't rotate its body enough. Now we understand the mechanics of how the mantis fine-tunes its orientation in the jump. How do you think this could be applied in other areas of research? Well, I think it has intrinsic value of its own, to start with. This is a very complicated movement, and the mantis has come up with some intricate mechanisms of, of how to solve the issue. But the, the application could be in robotics. One of the things that roboticists are trying to do is to build robots that can actually jump. And one of the huge design problems that they face in doing that is that once the robot has left the ground, it tends to spin uncontrollably. So it seems that jumping isn't the problem. It's getting robots to land safely, which is the big problem. That's right. It's getting them to be stable in the air. So taking some of the mechanisms that the mantis uses should enable roboticists to program their robots much more reliably and give them stability once they're in the air. This seems like yet another example of taking inspiration from nature, which has had billions of years to evolve, and applying it to our problems. Well, that's right. We've only been trying to design things ourselves for a few tens or hundreds of years. So why not take advantage of what's gone before us? Billions of years of history, providing solutions that may be of use in our designs. Malcolm Burroughs speaking with Khalil Thurloway. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. The FameLab competition, which is taking place at the moment, is all about getting scientists to talk about what matters to them. We've been hearing from some of the Cambridge finalists, and this week we're joined by Paul Clarkson. Hi, Paul. Hi, how's it going? Tell me about your work. You're a PhD student, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm currently doing a PhD in the application of phase change materials. So it's to do with nanofabrication, things on a very small scale, and taking advantage of what they actually can do, which is change between an amorphous state and a crystalline state. So making very tiny materials that can change with temperature and that sort of thing. Exactly. And what are you going to be talking about in FameLab? I'm actually going to be talking about a nuclear fission reactor. And what made you choose that? I used to be in a past life a, a nuclear research scientist before I started my PhD. I think it's it's quite, a, um, when, as soon as you mention the word nuclear, it can become quite divisive. So I, I like to be able to expel a lot of those believed demons on it. So Well, you've got me interested. So you've got a three minute talk that you're going to do for us now. I think that's right. That's correct. Okay, well, when you're ready, off you go. Who listening has misplaced something? I have. My car keys. They go missing a lot. I accuse my housemates of trying to sabotage my life and it can be quite annoying, especially if you know you have to get somewhere important like KFC before it closes. However, in the grand scheme of things, this is pretty trivial. But not everything that goes missing is trivial. 
Imagine you are a French scientist in 1972 in Africa. You are working at the Oklo uranium mine, and you have just calculated that roughly 200 kilograms of uranium-235 is missing. That's enough to make six nuclear bombs. Naturally, this raised a few eyebrows, and the scientists tried to think of where it was, but they were never going to find it. The answer was right under their noses, literally. The uranium no longer existed, as it had been burned up. That's right, the scientists were in fact standing on an ancient natural nuclear fission reactor. But how is this possible? Well, three key ingredients are needed for a nuclear reactor. One, you need fissionable material. This material is made up of atoms whose nucleus, a fat mass of protons and neutrons, will split into smaller nuclei and release energy when it absorbs a neutron. Two, you need neutrons in order to keep the reaction going. And three, you need a moderator something that can help control the rate of the nuclear reaction. It slows down neutrons and allows them to be absorbed by the fissionable material. And it turns out that two billion years ago, Oklo had all of these things. One, it had a large concentration of uranium-235, which is the fissionable material. Two, it had neutrons provided by normal radioactive decay of surrounding rocks. And most importantly, three, it had water. Water is excellent at slowing down neutrons, and so, with this mix, Oklo was able to sustain nuclear reactions for over 200,000 years, with an average power rating of about 100 kilowatts. That's enough to keep a few hundred kettles powered for eons. So why is this relevant today? Scientists and geologists have been investigating the movement of the fission waste from the Oklo reactor over this time period, one of the key things needed to be understood for a nuclear waste depository. And what has been found is that the nuclear waste hasn't travelled more than a few centimetres over two billion years. That is remarkable. That's without intelligent design or human engineering. Nature has yet again provided a potential solution. And it just goes to show that sometimes when you look for something that is missing, you can in fact find something that is far more valuable. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Paul. And um, good luck for the final. Oh, that was Paul Clarkson. <sighs> Back in December, London's Natural History Museum unveiled an amazing 150-million-year-old Stegosaurus fossil, and it was attractively named Sophie. Standing proudly in the museum's Earth Hall, Sophie is a very big, quite literally, attraction for visitors. But that's not the only thing that's big about her, as Kat discovered when she went to meet the researcher who's dedicated the past year of her life to studying the skeleton, and that's Charlotte Brassey. So we're here in the Natural History Museum, lots of people around us, and this beautiful skeleton here. Introduce me to this lady. So this is Sophie the Stegosaurus, uh, and she is 155 million years old. She's come all the way from Wyoming in the US, and she is arguably the most complete Stegosaurus skeleton ever found. Uh, what's particularly exciting about her is the skull. Uh, the skull is uh, entirely intact. Uh, the one on display is plastic, but we've got the, the real one in the basement and we're still studying it. Well, let's go and learn a little bit more about what you've been doing to understand more about what she looked like maybe in the actual flesh. Okay, so this is the, uh, the stores where we keep all the dinosaurs. Tell me how you're studying Sophie to try and work out a bit more what she looked like in real life. My background is in computer modelling. Uh, so what I've done uh, in the last year has come along and I've created a, a 3D computer model of every single bone in Sophie's body. Uh, and from that, we can then begin to estimate things like body mass. We can reconstruct how the muscles would have uh, been placed across her skeleton. Uh, we're looking at reconstructing how she would have walked uh, and also reconstructing the jaw muscles on her skull to look at what she could have eaten. 
obviously when we see dinosaurs in museums, they are all these bones. Paint me a picture of what you think she might have looked like in the glorious flesh. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about, about dinosaurs in general uh, is that the, the group of muscles that they use to kind of to pull their, their leg backwards as they move um, are, are very different to that what we see in, in modern mammals. Um, so you can see from Sophie, she's got a very long tail and she would have had very bulky muscles attaching along her tail onto the back of her legs. Uh, and actually, if you go up on our balcony and you look um, from the top down on Sophie, you see that she's got very, very wide hips. So those two facts combined mean she would have had quite an impressive rear end. <laughs> Hefty bulk. Yes. <laughs> how do you start working out how big a stegosaurus was and, and maybe how much she weighed? In the past, people have based it on, on simple measurements of the leg bones. So typically you would go into a museum collection full of modern animals, so modern mammals and birds and crocodiles, uh, and you would do something like you'd measure the length of the thigh bone or maybe the circumference around the middle of the thigh bone. Uh, and then you would also, knowing the body mass of the modern animal, you'd plot that on a simple scatter plot. So you'd plot body mass against this measure, lo- bone length, say, and you'd put a straight line through it. And you would then use that line to uh, predict the body mass of fossil animals. So we could then go and measure, say, the length of Sophie's thigh bone or the circumference around the middle of her thigh bone and use that line on our scatter plot to then back-estimate the body mass of Sophie. And that's really useful if all you have in the fossil record are isolated bones. Um, The vast majority of of fossil animals that we know of come from very fragmented remains. We don't have the whole skeleton. What's really exceptional about Sophie is that we've got so much of the skeleton. So it seems a shame to be reconstructing her body mass from just these simple measurements alone. We wanted to try and use the whole skeleton. Uh, So that's where my computer models come in. So once we've got a computer model of Sophie, uh, I import it into just a simple CAD package like engineers use. And then we can wrap very simple shapes around the 3D object of Sophie. Uh, And once we've got a volume for Sophie, we can then look at the relationship between body mass and volume in modern animals uh, and then use that relationship to estimate her body mass based on the whole skeleton. And so what do you think? How much do you think she might have weighed? What sort of heft was she on the ground? So our best guess at the moment is something around 1.6 tonnes. Um, which which intuitively seems likely to us. Uh, If you actually go and look at Sophie on display, she is smaller than an elephant, so you wouldn't be expecting body masses of, you know, three to four tonnes. She does look something like the size of of a rhino, uh, and that's about right for a rhino. Now that you've started to work this out about Sophie, about how much she might have weighed, what she, she looked like, what next? What do you still want to figure out about her? So body mass is is really fundamental from where we want to go from here. So in any kind of equation that I might use for, say, estimating how fast she might have moved, maybe reconstructing their metabolism, how much would they have to eat, all those things, all of those equations and models require an estimate for body mass. So that's why we had to get this really nailed down very early on, and from that we can build upon this. Um, So the thing that I'm working on now is beginning to, to strap muscles onto my 3D models, looking at uh, how efficient some of her muscles would have been for moving her limbs and then eventually reconstructing how she would have walked. Real life walking with dinosaurs. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You've got to get your information from somewhere, haven't you? <laughs> Katani talking with Charlotte Brassie and meeting Sophie the Stegosaurus.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. Now, if you're in the middle of eating, you might want to put your knife and fork down for a moment, because we're about to delve into the weird and wonderful world of parasites. From the head louse to the tapeworm, and from the fish tongue louse to the zombie ant fungus, parasites come in all shapes and sizes. We'll be exploring the various ways that they can manipulate larger animals to make life easier for themselves and how, in turn, we might be able to turn the tables and exploit parasites themselves to solve a range of medical problems. First, let's get a better picture of what life is actually like for parasites and the challenges that they have to overcome with the help of Mark Viney, who's from Bristol University. Hello, Mark. Hello there. Well, first of all, what actually is a parasite? Well, in the broadest sense, a parasite is any organism that lives in or on another organism to make its living. So this would include things like viruses and bacteria. But when we typically talk about parasites, what we really mean are animals that live in or on other organisms to make a living. And these are things like uh, protozoa, which are single-celled animals. And an example of that is uh, the malaria parasite. Um, But then multicellular animals also live in and on other animals and plants. And these are typically worms that will, for example, very commonly live in the guts of other animals uh, or in other locations in their body. Uh, Some of them live on the surface of fish, for example, and on the gills of fish. Um, But the other sort of parasites as well are ectoparasites, which are insects and other arthropods, things like lice, fleas and ticks. How long have these sorts of organisms been around in terms of the evolution of life on Earth? I think parasites have been around as long as there's been something to parasitise. And I think what you have to remember is that um, every organism is trying to make a living in quite a tough world. And what a host or a potential host species is, is a, a nice patch of juicy resource waiting to be exploited. And of course, parasites have evolved to exploit uh, those resources, those hosts, every time they become present. And I guess the proof of that is that any animal or plant that you could care to look at in your garden or that you might see on the television line, David, Attenborough programme is actually teeming with parasites. Every one of those animals will have worms in its guts and it'll have protozoa in its, in its blood and it'll have actoparasites on its skin. And that's the normal state of most animals. And that's because well, that multitude of parasites is because it's a very ancient life history uh, that has evolved to exploit this rare resource. Quite a complicated life story too, though, isn't it? So how would something so complicated as the ability to penetrate another organism stay there, outwit the immune system of that organism and feed off that organism how would that evolve in the first place and get started that's a very good question that's a and a tricky area i would say um what one imagines is that organisms were destined to become uh, endoparasites or parasites that are living inside other organisms actually started off in their evolutionary history to becoming a parasite by living in ever closer association uh, with uh, another organism so for example if you go and uh, cut up a, uh, a snail from the garden you'll very often find some some worms on living very closely and intimately uh, on those snails but they're probably not parasites so one imagines that these animals you know, potential parasites um, became ever more intimately associated with organisms before then actually becoming dependent on those parasites but you're absolutely right parasites have to have had to evolve a whole range of adaptations to live inside uh, uh, hosts and to cope with all the challenges that brings which is uh, feeding off the host surviving the immune response that the host is directing uh, towards those parasites and I think the other thing that's interesting to think about with parasites is they're a patch of resource that um, parasites have evolved to expose uh, exploit excuse me 
but those patches of hosts are quite separated in the environment. So there's always a distance between two potential host species, the two host individuals, for example. And the challenge of moving between hosts is something that parasites have had to uh, evolve quite a lot of adaptations to achieve. So, and that's the process of infection, in fact. Is it fair to say then that uh, if parasites have just evolved to exploit a resource, that parasites themselves can catch parasites? Are there parasites that prey on parasites? Do fleas have fleas? Well, absolutely. Um, the, uh, for, well, we can talk about uh, some of the microparasites, things like viruses, but any any uh, any macroparasites, so worms or uh, protozoa for that matter, will also have viruses themselves. They're just another resource to be exploited. So quite literally, it carries on ad infinitum as the rhyme goes, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. Mark Viney from Bristol University. Thank you very much. One of the ways parasites can get from one host to another is by hitching a ride on a biting insect. For example, the malaria parasite, called plasmodium, is carried by mosquitoes and it's transmitted in the insect's saliva when it feeds on blood. But malaria doesn't just settle for relying on the mosquito's natural feeding habits. Scientists have discovered that it also alters the insect's appetite and makes it more attracted to certain human smells, increasing the rate of transmission. Khalil Thurloway has been hearing how. I'm here in my home city of London, standing outside the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Inside that building is the world's deadliest double act, and I'm about to meet it face to face. But first... I'm going to learn a little bit more from someone who knows this deadly duo inside and out. Hello, um, I'm here to see Vicky Austin. I work on malaria. Malaria is a disease that kills half a million people every single year. So it's a huge disease and it affects people by invading red blood cells and bursting them, which causes fever and it causes illness. One of the main targets in the fight against malaria is actually the vector, the mosquito that transmits the disease, and that's where I come in. I hear that you have a room full of mosquitoes here. That's true, actually. Do you want to see? Yes, please. That'd be great. Let's go to the insectary. We've stepped into a small, dungeon-like room with lots of clear plastic mesh boxes all around. And on closer inspection, they're actually full of hundreds of little mosquitoes feeding from an electronically warmed blood pack that's stuck to the top of the mesh box. That's actually my blood. Wow, suffering for your work. Uh, That's great. Now, before we continue, I have to ask, are any of these carrying malaria? Absolutely not. Luckily for you, this is a clean room, so all of the mosquitoes in here are waiting to be infected. So we're nice and safe? We're nice and safe here at the moment, yeah. Great. So what are you doing with this room full of blood-sucking mosquitoes? Well, for years, people have been combating malaria, but most of these um, control methods, they focus on insecticides or insecticide-treated bed nets, but we're coming at it from a new approach. So a mosquito has a really acute sense of smell. They can pick up on really tiny amounts of certain compounds that are given off by a human body, and that's how they find a human to feed on, to take a blood meal. What part does the parasite play in this? Well, that's the fascinating part, actually. Uh, Once the mosquito is infected with plasmodium, lots of different aspects of its behaviour can change. There are lots of different things, such as it is maybe more likely to take a blood meal, or it's more likely to take longer to feed... All of these things can increase the chance that it will successfully pass on that parasite to a new host. The bit that I'm particularly interested in is that the mosquito is actually more sensitive to specific aspects of human smell, and that's what's really fascinating. How do you determine which components of the human smell are attractive or repellent to mosquitoes? Essentially what we do is electroantonography, or EAG, and this technique actually involves cutting off a mosquito's head and mounting it on an electrode. We pass compounds that we're interested in over the antenna, 
and we measure the electrical impulses when those nerves fire, and that's how we know when a compound is exciting to a mosquito. How could this understanding be used in the fight against malaria? One possible application of our work could be to design traps that are more effective um, because they're based on those really attractive compounds we identify from people. And potentially we could even be designing traps that are specific for infected mosquitoes if we're seeing differences in that sort of attraction. Another option could be to design repellents based on certain compounds we've identified that are unattractive to mosquitoes. We know that people give off these sorts of compounds naturally already. So is that why some people get bitten more than others? Ah, exactly. There's a huge variety in how people uh, smell to mosquitoes and some people are very, very attractive and some people are quite unattractive. And we're looking at the differences between those people and, and what sort of smells they give off themselves. Most importantly, we now understand a lot more about how mosquito behaviour changes once it's infected with malaria. And this sort of knowledge will feed into a huge variety of control methods and, and lots of other areas of research as well as we understand this system more. Hugely important research as I'm one of those people who seems to get bitten everywhere I go. That was Vicky Austin talking with Khalil Thurlaway at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. You're like my wife, Ginny. Great to be around because I never get bitten. People <laughs> like you are doing people like me a massive favour. Well, I'm glad I could be of help. Now, we've just heard how malaria manipulates the behaviour of its mosquito host to increase the odds of being passed on. But some parasites go even further and they dramatically alter the shape of their host's body. In the mid-1990s, there was a flurry of reports from the Western USA of frogs being found with severely deformed limbs. Peter Johnson from the University of Colorado Boulder was one of the scientists who was called on to investigate, and he's with us now. Hello, Peter. Hi there, Chris. So what was causing these deformities in the frogs? Well, one of the main causes turned out to be parasite infection. And essentially, there was this tiny flatworm parasite, no bigger than the period at the end of a sentence, that would attack tadpoles while they were developing in ponds. And this would lead to severe limb deformities. We would find frogs with five or six extra limbs, some frogs with no hind limbs at all, others with bizarre webbing that sort of prevented their limbs from being able to extend. And in some parts of the country, we would find 50, 60, or even 100% of the emerging frogs showing these severe crippling deformities. And why was the parasite doing this to the frogs? Yeah, great question. So this, this trematode or this flatworm is called Riberoia ondatre. And the main reason it would do this is to reproduce, of course. The main reason most organisms do just about anything. And it turns out that Riberoia has this complex life cycle. So frogs are only one of the many hosts that it infects. And other animals that it'll infect include freshwater snails that are in ponds, and finally, birds that get infected uh, once they actually eat the deformed frogs. And so it turns out that by crippling the frogs, by inhibiting their primary mode of locomotion, you're making them easy prey for the birds. So the birds will swoop down, they'll eat the frogs, they'll get infected by the parasite, and it's there that the parasite actually gets to reproduce sexually. And then you have this brilliant system of dispersal, right? Because birds will fly across the landscape, and essentially, when they defecate, they're dropping out the eggs of the parasite all over the landscape. And they then make their way back to the nearest pond and a snail that's in the pond that will pick them up. That's exactly right. Now, how did you, as the scientist involved in investigating these flurries of deformed frogs, actually start piecing all this together to work out what was going on? 
mostly by making a lot of mistakes, I would say, was the uh, the best strategy. So we, we ruled a lot of things out. I started working on this when I was an undergraduate student. And essentially what we tried to do is combine careful field surveys of where these deformities were occurring with laboratory examinations of the animals and then finally experiments. And what you find is that if you bring the water in from the ponds where these deformities are occurring, that water doesn't cause deformities in frogs in the lab. And if you actually raise the offspring of deformed frogs, uh, those two are not showing any deformity. So we were zeroing in on something in the environment that was attacking them during early development. And one of the key observations was that almost all of the ponds where we were seeing these really severe deformities supported this very particular type of snail. It's called a ram's horn snail. And it turns out that that's the key snail that this parasite needs to support its infection. So once we started to make those connections, we actually brought the parasite and the snails into the laboratory. And then you can expose tadpoles to even really small numbers of parasites, three, four, maybe as many as 10 of these tiny parasites. And quickly you see them attacking the limbs. They show a very specific distribution. No matter where you put them on the tadpole, They'll migrate all over the place until they find the limbs. And then they produce these very powerful enzymes that essentially allow them to burn their way into the tadpole's tissue right where those limbs are trying to grow. And sure enough, if you do this in the laboratory, you get the animals with the extra limbs, with the missing limbs, with the severe skin webbings, and you can essentially reproduce all of those same deformities that you see in nature. How do you think the parasites evolved to be able to do that because it's such a complicated process of being able to target the snail, then target the growing limbs of a tadpole, have the right enzymes to do it, and then ultimately make your frog get eaten by a bird so that you can complete that life cycle. That's so many steps of evolution. How did earth did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it most of the evidence suggests that if you look at these flatworm parasites, that they probably started out as parasites of snails. And then they've progressively added hosts onto their life cycle. Uh, and some of the reasons to do this are maybe you end up adding the tadpole first, um, but it turns out that your frog gets eaten, as happens to many frogs and many tadpoles, and that over time the parasites have basically developed this ability to survive predation, that they are, are somewhat unkillable by those digestive enzymes produced by something like the bird. And so this has gone from focusing on being a snail parasite to being a snail plus frog and then maybe being a snail frog as well as a bird parasite. The advantages are obvious in terms of that extra dispersal ability you have. You can suddenly crisscross the continent and travel thousands of miles inside a bird. Um, and then in terms of the frog component, I think the big challenge faced there is that if your frog lives to a ripe old age and never gets eaten by a bird then the parasite dies with it without ever getting to reproduce. So you can imagine how that puts enormous selective pressure on the parasite to find ways or to have selection operating to find ways to make sure that frog dies and that it dies the way the parasite needs it to. It's an incredible process, isn't it? Peter Johnson, thank you very much. Peter is from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Ginny. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Ginny Smith. Still to come, can clean living and an absence of parasites make us more prone to allergies and other inflammatory diseases?
But before that, how do hosts attempt to fend off parasitic infections? Of course, we're not completely defenceless against these attackers. Animals have evolved an immune system to help protect themselves. And parasites have, in turn, evolved countermeasures to enable them to slip under our immune radar. The University of Edinburgh's Rick Maisel studies how they work. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So how does an animal's body try to fend off attack from parasites? We've heard that we're sort of getting attacked from every side. What do people and animals do about it? Well, it's a big job. If you think of a a phagocyte that can engulf a bacteria, that's not possible with a parasite that's 1,000 times bigger than the cell itself. So the job of the immune system is to mobilise masses, swarms of cells to surround the parasites. Um, And this seems to be conducted and orchestrated by the T-cell population, effector T-cells that make cytokines that activate these um, these swarms of cells. And I guess it must be quite different if you're trying to attack a parasite that's in the blood, say like the malaria one, versus um, a tick or something that's living on the body. Yes, I think to uh, exclude an ectoparasite is a somewhat simpler job for the immune system <laughs> than dealing with something in the heart of the bloodstream. So your body's sending these cells to attack the parasite. What do they actually do to it to kill it? This is what we're working on at the moment. One idea is, is that the, they lay siege. They surround the parasite. They may uh, deposit toxic proteins around the parasite, but they may also withdraw nutrients from the environment and so essentially starve the parasite to death. And I imagine that the parasites have evolved ways to try and get around it. So what are they doing to counter our attack measures? Well, very much so. Every parasite has its own sort of strategy. But one of the ones we've found repeatedly uh, coming up in both human parasites and in lab models is to pretend that the parasite is a little bit like our own body. And to do this, it recruits an interesting set of T-cells, which are the opposite of the ones I mentioned, called the regulatory T-cells. These are a bit like the, um, we call them the health and safety officers of the immune system. They make sure that the immunity doesn't get out of hand. So they exploit this by producing a molecule very like our own, which drives these regulatory T-cells and switches off the immune system. They're effectively pretending to be part of our own body so that we don't attack them. Absolutely. They rewrite the rules of the immune system to their own advantage. And has that changed the way our immune systems respond in general? Well, we, th- we think it, this, this leads on a little bit to what you were mentioning about uh, whether the immune system overshoots in the absence of parasites because our, our body is tuned to expect uh, parasites uh, as part of our normal environment. We've been talking mainly about parasites in the blood, but we mentioned things like head lice and that sort of thing as well. Is there anything that our bodies can do to try and avoid those kind of critters? Well, we have certain specialised cells. One type is called basophils, which home in on on the skin where there's a ectoparasite. And again, probably toxic proteins are produced and the um, site of of biting quickly becomes inimical to the ectoparasite that then has to leave. Is that why it can be so itchy when you've got a bite? Is it actually our own body's defences causing that itch? In some cases that will be the case. In other cases the itch, for example, to to a short-lived mosquito bite is uh, an after effect and doesn't actually protect us from from the vector. 
Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Rick. That was Rick Maisels from the University of Edinburgh. Well, also with Rick is Henry McSorley, who is also from the University of Edinburgh. And it's fair to say that this sort of cat and mouse game between parasites and our immune system has been going on for generations. But in modern times, our obsession with sterility means that we're actually living without many of what we could regard as old friends. So might there be a downside to this? What do you think, Henry? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the evidence for this comes from uh, areas where parasitic infection is uh, still very common. And uh, when we uh, look at populations uh, infected with parasites, they tend to have much lower levels of uh, diseases such as allergic asthma. Whereas in this country, uh, as you were saying, improvements in hygiene and sanitation have resulted in our really uh, eradicating parasites over the last kind of 100 years or so. And over that same time period, we've suffered an epidemic of allergy. And so uh, researchers are calling this a hygiene hypothesis, that we're too clean and this has led to us being prone to um, hyperactive immune responses. Henry, how can we disentangle the effects of a sterile lifestyle and an obsession with bleach and uh, avoiding bugs like the plague alongside the absence of parasites? Because might it not be that the exposure to chemicals in our environment that we use to clean our environment are what are causing the allergy? And it's nothing to do with the fact that we're now not parasite laden, because as Mark Viney was saying earlier, actually, uh, parasites, you know, pretty much are harmful. They're stealing from us. Well, that's true. I mean, I, th- I think uh, all of this correlative work, you know, correlation doesn't imply causation, um, really has to be tested. And, and that's really what we're trying to do by being able to control when the parasites infect uh, and looking at the development of allergy. We can show much more directly that parasites can prevent the development of allergy and maybe be exploited to create new medicines against allergy. Indeed, how are people trying to do that? What we're uh, doing is trying to um, move away from using actual parasitic infection. So there are lots of uh, clinical trials ongoing where people are being infected deliberately with live parasites to try and control diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease or uh, allergic asthma. Um, However, we... um, we don't know exactly how these parasites work and what they're actually doing. So our approach to it is that we think it would be a much better idea to try and um, find the exact molecules that parasites are using to affect the uh, immune system and the immune pathways that they're acting on. And then we could perhaps uh, develop these parasite molecules as new medicines um, uh, for these diseases. And, so you could swallow you know, a pill rather than a worm, which sounds a bit more yeah, well, exactly right, stomachable, yes. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Where are we on the way to doing that? Because it's pretty tricky to try and understand what that particular intestinal worm that is living hooked on the side of your intestine is doing to your immune system at at the tiny level that these things are operating at, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The approach that uh, we've taken is uh, collecting all of the products that parasites release into the host and which we think contain some molecules which will uh, modulate the host immune response. We collect these molecules and we find that by administering them, we can replicate many of the suppressive uh, effects of the parasitic infection. But is the site also important? Because if you have a parasite that has evolved to live latched onto your gut and deliver these things at the right sort of concentration, at the right sort of level and in the right sort of way, it might not be just a simple case of we'll copy those chemicals and then inject them or something. They might not work. 
Absolutely, and that's a really good point. I mean, uh, this is what we're finding. It may not be a single molecule, it may be uh, a mixture, and uh, it may very much depend on, on the dose and, yeah, exactly where, where you administer it. So if you're looking at trying to um, affect colitis, maybe a, a pill would be a great idea, but if you're trying to uh, affect uh, asthma, then maybe something that you actually inhale straight into the lungs. What sorts of disorders are you going for or what sorts of conditions do you think might be amenable to this sort of approach? really any disease where a hyperactive immune response causes problems. So these are diseases such as uh, allergy, which as I was saying is very common uh, in this country, uh, allergic asthma, uh, but also inflammatory bowel disease um, and also uh, autoimmunity. And there's uh, clinical trials of uh, infection going on in, in all of these um, diseases. But as I say, we're trying to uh, create uh, uh, defined medicines to actually treat them. And how far have you got? We have got from the level of finding that we have whole parasite products, a real uh, mixture of stuff which can suppress things like asthma in mouse models. And we've uh, just in the last year actually gone down to the level of having a couple of individual proteins which we can produce in a highly purified form in the lab. And these can replicate many of the suppressive effects of uh, parasitic infection. So these could be perhaps uh, directly developed as drugs. And in fact, recently, just in the last month, uh, we've shown that these molecules uh, work directly on human cells in the lab in exactly the same way as they do in the mice. So it's, it seems like there's a very uh, clear pipeline to make these into new medicines and put these into people. Sounds wonderful. Congratulations. What about side effects, though? Or is there a downside to this? Anytime you're talking about suppressing immune responses, there could obviously be side effects, which would include, you know, increasing your susceptibility to infection or even to uh, tumour surveillance. So your immune system can stop you from, you know, having tumours progressing. However, what we're talking about in in this sense, uh, especially in the, the asthma work, is to try and tolerate people against uh, inhaled allergens. Uh, these would be things like um, cat dander or pollen or whatever. Um, so you could administer these uh, parasite products which are highly tolerogenic with your uh, allergen that you want to tolerate against and hopefully drive a tolerant state that would last for years and you could uh, essentially cure allergic asthma. Let's hope so. What a wonderful story. Thank you very much, Henry McSorley from the University of Edinburgh. And thank you to our other guests this week who were before him, Rick Mazels, Peter Johnson, Vicky Austin and Mark Viney. And finally this week, we've been riddled with curiosity over this question sent in by Claire. I'd like to know what parasites you can catch from your pet. To answer this lousy question, I enlisted the help of veterinary parasitologist Professor Susan Little from Oklahoma State University. Pets are a potential source of parasites to people. Fleas, ticks, even mange mites are common on pets that don't receive preventives. So routine flea and tick control is a key part of responsible pet ownership. That's making my skin crawl. Apart from things that make you itch, is there anything else that can get further into our bodies? Some intestinal parasites of pets also infect people, including parasitic worms like Toxicara, which can cause inflammation in the eye or in internal organs from migrating larvae that have been ingested, or pet hookworms, which induce an itchy rash after larvae penetrate the skin from contaminated soil. Looks like it's not just the early birds that catch the worms. Toxicara are a type of parasitic roundworm and are found in the poo of infected animals. Children are most likely to pick up an infection because they play in infected soil and grass. So be sure to wash your hands before lunch or you might be eating more than just your sandwiches. Pets might also be infected with protozoa like Toxoplasma gondii in cats, which can cause human disease and is of particular concern to pregnant women and people with weakened immune systems. 
Toxoplasma is another parasite you can get from infected faeces. The majority of people it infects show no symptoms as our immune systems keep the parasites in check. But it can have devastating effects for pregnant women as it can be transmitted to the unborn baby and cause birth defects. There have also been reports of Toxo having some behaviour-altering effects with infected men showing less regard for the rules and women becoming more outgoing and warm-hearted. Most of these intestinal parasites are acquired from egg or larval stages in fecal-contaminated soil or water, rather than directly from the pets. But because dogs and cats often clean themselves with their tongue, pet kisses are usually not advisable. Oh, so cute. Not to be unduly disgusting here, but we have likely all seen dogs and cats clean themselves or drink out of the toilet or practice similar behaviours. As much as we might love our pets, it's not the best idea to be letting them give you big, sloppy kisses. With all these terrifying parasites around... Are we really safe around our furry friends? Overall, pet ownership has not been shown to pose a direct risk of parasitic infection to people. But keeping pets parasite-free reduces environmental contamination with parasites and so limits infections in the overall community. With proper veterinary care, pets are a safe and wonderful member of the family. Thank you, Susan, for that infectious answer. Next week, we'll be answering this electrifying question sent in on Twitter by Bonga 1986 uh, Is it possible to use eels as a source of electricity? Eels as a power source, who would have thought it? Well, if you would like to electrify our inbox with your suggestions, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on our forum. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills and Khalil Thurlaway for their help with the production and to Ginny Smith for joining me. We're back next week with a look at why Isaac Newton stuck a needle in his eye and how radio telescopes can help us to probe the dim and dusty reaches of the universe. Join us then as we shed some light on the science of light. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.